Hey, y'all. Welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. If I met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Uh, But I just want to say, especially as we get started tonight, uh, that if you've brought a friend this semester or if you're new this semester uh, to RUF or this is one of the first few times you kind of checked us out or something, I just want to say thanks for coming and thanks for inviting people. I think one of the best ways to get involved with RUF is actually just to invite someone and say, hey, I like this thing. I think it's been helpful for me. I like the community of people that are there. Uh, Would you want to come to this with me? It's a great way to get involved. I know we have a leadership retreat on April 28th, and that'll be great and fun. But, man, one of the best ways to get involved is just to invite someone. And then, you know, if you come, uh, to know that, you know, as good as Wednesday night is, that so much of the depth and the richness of this community happens uh, through community groups and through one-on-one kind of coffee dates and lunches and things like that. So just get involved. Um, these are great people. Um, I love these people. And it's really, really fun to, to get to do my job, uh, to be the wife of the campus minister. <laughs> it's a privilege that I'll never forget. <laughs> no, uh, but to get to do this job and be with y'all on this campus is amazing. And so if you're checking us out, uh, I just want to encourage you to keep um, getting involved and moving deeper into this. So this semester, uh, we're looking at the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament. And it's just the story of... What does Jesus continue to do after his death and his resurrection? And how does he work? And he's working, as we've seen through the last few weeks, through his church, through his people, and through the work of his spirit. And we're seeing that more tonight. We're in Acts chapter 10, um, which is a story of Peter going to go meet uh, Cornelius. So, this is Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 9 through 33. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city... Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And so the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. There it goes. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So I invited them in to be his guest. There we go. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. 
And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodged in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Okay, I think we're... There we go. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. That's God's word. Let me pray for us tonight. Father, as we uh, delve into the story, I pray that you would give us um, something of your spirit tonight to see and behold wondrous and good things in your word. Lord, your beauty and your truth, your goodness and your light. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to know you really and truly in our heart of hearts. And God, that you would send us from here uh, with a much greater love for you and love for the people you put in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we get started, what's going on here with Peter? Uh, This is a long, long story. We didn't read all of it. We're kind of jumping into the middle of things as it is. But this, this is part of Peter and the rest of the Jewish Christian church realizing the full extent of God's mission and that the gospel is for everyone. And that what that mission gets snagged on, as we see it, we'll see tonight, is that it's not out there, but it's actually in here, in our hearts. And one of the things that I really want to ask as we get started here, and we start to look at mission, and look at God's mission, and what it looks like for us to be involved in mission, is as we get hung up on this, and we struggle to do it, and you know, Christians you know, fall on their faces in this sometimes, how do you think that sometimes comes off? to people who aren't Christians. Like, how does that come off to them at times? Do you ever wonder that? I don't talk too much about myself up here, I don't think. Um, Maybe you disagree with me on that. But uh, I was an atheist until I was 17. And even though I grew up in kind of the buckle of the Bible belt and a family that believed in God and we went to church every Sunday, I just thought the whole Christian thing was just totally ridiculous. And I thought the songs were super phony. I thought the prayers were cheesy. I felt really empty. I thought the sermons the pastor gave were just had no relevance to my life. Um, were just kind of feel good and trying to make me be a more moral person. And I would have, I think, have been willing to talk more about faith and religion, but I didn't feel like it was really a safe place for me to do that. That it wasn't okay for me to really bring this up with Christians. And as I I've thought about that kind of over the years, I think two things really stand out to me as why I kind of thought that. Um, one of them was that uh, there was a sign on the roadside just north of Montgomery, a place, uh, the capital of Alabama. I lived about two hours south of there. And every, I guess three or four times a year, my family and I would drive up through this highway and we would drive up north of Montgomery. And as you get north of Montgomery, there's this really picturesque kind of house. It's very green, pasture. There's like this water wheel. There's like a little bass uh, pond and kind of a stream that flows out of it. And it's just really lovely, except for one thing. There's this huge, huge sign of the devil with a scythe on it that says, go to church or the devil will get you. There it is. <laughs> it's humongous and impossible not to notice. But look, look how pretty that water wheel is. That pasture is lush. Lush, y'all. And I remember driving by that and just thinking, someone chose... The stick over the carrot on this time. Um, It was just not a very safe thing. I can also remember growing up at Halloween every year, and we will 
never do this in RUF, but just I have to preface the story with that. At Halloween every year, one of the local churches would put on what was called a judgment house, which is, I know, you already know this is going to be bad. <laughs> which was like a Christian version of a haunted house, right? So like instead of like ghosts and goblins and the guy in the mask with the fake chainsaw that like chases you through the rooms, like what you would have as you walked into the judgment house was this like scenario. And it was this prom couple... And they'd been drinking on prom night, and there'd been this terrible accident, and they had died, and he had been a Christian, and she had not been a Christian, and you're, you get to watch them walk through judgment together. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. The buckle of the Bible Belt. <laughs> and so you would, go, like, you would go through the hell part first. And it would be hot, and it would be dark, and there'd be all these like people like kind of hiding, and they try to grab you. I use that as a chance to grab my date's hand and like work something. Because <laughs> um, I was 16. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the idea that you would take a date to the Judgment House is your first clue of what it was like for me. <laughs> So many things that are wrong with the story, right? Uh, and then the, you would get through the part where the guy or whoever was not a Christian would get judged. And then you would walk into the other part and the girl who had been a Christian, she's like sitting at this like really cheesy banquet table with like plates that have been spray painted gold and there's a guy in a beard. And she's like at the heavenly banquet and it looks like not that fun. And Jesus kind of looks disappointed in her. And at the end of it, you would go into this room and it'd be like every head bowed, every eyes closed. You know, if you feel like you want to become a Christian tonight, then just raise your hand and we'll talk with you. And I knew not to do that because my brother had done it the night before and he was like, do not raise your hand, bro. Do not raise your hand. <laughs> and those were just kind of my experiences, like growing up as like not a Christian on the buckle of the Bible belt. And, you know, and clearly God has worked in my life in some pretty big ways because I'm going to drain Pastor now who's standing here talking to you about this stuff. But those were some of the worst examples of, you know, Bible Belt Christianity that I got. There are lots of really sweet, beautiful Christian people that I knew and you talk to them at grocery stores or I was on a soccer team with them. But I know that some of you all probably have similar stories or even worse stories than that. And sometimes when Christians think about you know, what are the things that keep the gospel from going out? Or what are the things that stop us from being really missional and this thing kind of just blowing up and being awesome? Like, Christians want to put their finger out there, right? Like, culture is so secular. It's just deteriorating everywhere. The nuclear family is just breaking down. Uh, after 9-11, the big enemy in the free world has gone from atheist communist, like uh, the Cold War, to, you know, religious extremist. And that changes the conversation, so it's a harder sell to get someone to buy into Christianity. Like, we can look outside, or, you know, you can look at things that other Christians are doing and kind of smack yourself in the forehead. Like, weird Christians who do weird evangelism. Like, Gary the Pit Preacher is not doing us any favors. I don't think of him as, like, someone's helping me out. There's Christian scandals, right? Uh, some of you may or may not know, like, Elevation Church in Charlotte a few years ago, their pastor... The big news story run on him for having built like a multi multi million dollar like house out in the middle of nowhere because um, he was just like getting really wealthy 
Uh, there's Christian hypocrisy. That could maybe be the people you grew up with in your youth group and they maybe burned you. That could also be the fact that you know a lot of evangelicals voted for Trump, even though morally he's opposed to everything that they stand for. And there's reasons for why that happened, but it still looks pretty bad to a lot of people. And all those things may be true, but as people who want to follow Christ, you have to ask yourself, like, what does it start to look like to be missional? Especially as you read a book like the book of Acts. Like, is it, you know, why can't I reach the world? Because the world is so bad. Or because, you know, other Christians are getting in my way. Like, no, like, every Christian, everyone wants to, like, live missionally, has to start with some kind of self-analysis. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how do I act as a barrier to mission? Because I'm the only one that I can control. I have no power over the pit preacher. I have no power over what votes people cast or don't cast. But we have to ask ourselves, like, what power do I have? How do I obstruct mission? What does it look like for me to be missional? So tonight, I want to ask three questions of this text. One, what in me is the barrier to mission? Two, how does that barrier come down? And what do I do after it comes down? Like, what in me is the barrier? How does it come down? And what do I do after it comes down? So what's the barrier here? What's the barrier? What does it look like for Peter? Peter is a guy who's raised in this super devout, first century Christian Jewish family. And the expectation there, which even though it was not biblical, was that if you were somebody who cared about God, then you avoided non-Jews and non-Jewish things. But the point of this weird vision that Peter gets is that God has made all this food clean, like pigs and snakes and other creepy crawlies. And so he's going to make these Gentile people clean as well. And Peter's struggle here is that these people are not the kind of people that he's used to hanging out with. These are not the kind of customs he's used to. And can we pause right there and just say, maybe that's some of my problem as well. I mean, people, this is not just Christians, this is everybody, but people love to huddle up with people like us, right? PLUs, people like us. In Acts chapter 2, there's this spirit of reconciliation that comes and brings all these tribes and tongues and nations and races together. And all these people are reconciled. And the gospel is for all these different places and peoples. And they huddle together and stay in Jerusalem. And it's not for like six chapters later that anybody goes out and starts to tell Jesus, or tell people about Jesus. They just want to live in this cluster. This guy, Charles Murray, uh, wrote a book called Coming Apart, The State of White America. I read it this last summer because I'd never read a book about white people, even though I'm a white person. And I thought, that might be helpful. And he said, the way that America is today, it's just hard for educated, middle to upper middle class people to get out of their bubble, even when they live right on top of one another, like we do at UNC. We can be really busy. Like, it, it feels like I barely have enough time to take care of myself. Of course I don't have time for other people in my life. I mean, do we want to live intentional lives? Do we need structure? Yeah. But we just don't build a lot of buffer into our time, and we schedule people out. And if the only people you schedule in are people like us, then of course it's going to be hard to be really missional. Right? There's... A kind of us versus them that's always very easy to fall into. And this, again, is everybody, not just Christians, but there are good people and there are bad people. And every people group, every religion, every culture does this. It's a people thing 
But man, Christians can really wield this thing. I mean, non-Christians are right to say to us, you know, if you take the Bible seriously and you can't find something about it yourself in it to repent about, then I don't want to hear about it. I mean, the application of Bible studies, personal devotions, RUF sermons, cannot be outside of the room. It has to start with us. I mean, reading some of the words that people who are Christians and struggle with same-sex attraction have said have been said to them, I mean, it's devastating. Like, biblically, yes, sex should only occur between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But does that give Christians the right to shame people who don't follow biblical sexuality? Like, absolutely not. And to our shame, Christians have been some of the worst offenders of that. At times, Christians have hypocritically read the Bible and applied it to everybody but themselves. Proverbs chapter 6 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. So He says six that He hates. We're going to add a seventh on there just for good measure. And you read it and you think, this guy's about to blast somebody. What is at the very top of that list, do you think? The number one thing. God hates haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Looking around at other people, thinking you're the jam, and all these other people are beneath you. God hates that. And at times Christians have read things about sexual sin, or about like Psalm 14, where those who don't believe in God are fools. And said, you know, oh, gross, get away from those people. And then they read Proverbs 6 and say, well, you know, there's grace for sinners. And the world sees that and is rightly disgusted by hypocrisy in it. Christians have all these resources to do mission and to be hypermissional. And we struggle with it because the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't here. Like, I, I, I saw the movie Black Panther a couple of weeks ago, opening night. It was awesome. No spoilers here, other than to say, you know, when Black Panther kills Batman, <laughs> that fight scene was amazing. That's all I'm going to say. No, that doesn't happen. Batman is in the DC world. Black Panther's Marvel. It doesn't work that way, y'all. Come on. Proprietary rights. Um, Black Panther, a major theme running through this movie, which you could figure out just from watching the trailers, is that here is this country that has these unimaginable resources to do stuff, to help the world, and they have never flexed their muscles to make that happen. And the problem is that it's just not fun to get involved in other people's junk, even when you could help. And that is just a fallen part of being a human being. But Christians really do have some major resources to go out and help the world. One, we have the gospel of God's love for sinners. Two, we have the church, which means you don't have to do stuff alone. Three, lest we forget, Christians have the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity lives inside of Christians and makes them new and gives them power to actually love and care for people. Unimaginable resources for helping the world. And yet we have these problems inside of ourselves that just kind of hang us up. So if that's the problem, what's the solution? Where do we go from here? I have six suggestions for you from this text. They're all very quick, though. One, repentance. Everyone's like, ugh. <laughs> repentance. Part, part of how you're going to have to start to do mission is you've got to begin by humbling yourself before the Lord and kneel before God and say, you know, 
Honestly, I just don't care that much about people who don't know you, who don't care about you. To be honest, honestly, I think of them as kind of an inconvenience sometimes. Something that you use sometimes to make me feel guilty. I don't have a lot of joy for mission. I don't have a lot of love for mission. Even though I know that if I were to listen to your word, I would know that it was a good thing. Like we have to acknowledge that and repent before the Lord and just kind of say the things that are true. I mean, look what Peter says here in verse 28. You yourselves know... Oh, wait, I get to skip back, don't I? Uh, Verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Which is not true. But God has told me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Peter here is dying to his emphasis on his own culture and to people like him. A Roman centurion is not a person like Peter. But Peter is in his house caring for him and ministering to him because Peter is repenting. Two, there's also should be just confident expectation in God's work. The whole story of Peter here, the whole book of Acts is about God and not the church, but God primarily being intent on the work of saving the world and bringing all these people to himself. And that should give you incredible hope. An incredible resource for doing ministry. Because you should know that God has been at work at UNC and the rest of the world for hundreds of years. And unless the Lord Jesus tarries, he will be at work here for many more hundreds of years. Which means that God is at work now. And you should have confidence in that. Three, when God does work, how does he do it? He works with honesty and love. Cornelius is a guy who prays. He gives money to God's stuff, but he doesn't actually know God. He's moving towards the truth of who God is, and God honors that. And when he does it, what does he do? He doesn't just give him a pass and say, Ah, you're trying hard. Good for you. Come on in. He sends him Peter to tell him the gospel because it's only through Jesus that Cornelius and his family can be saved. And when Peter comes to him and finally speaks, He doesn't shy away from telling him the truth and grace of the gospel. I mean, we didn't read it tonight, but in verse 42, Peter's going to say, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The way that God answers a person's prayer that they would know him or know truth is by sending him another person to tell that person the good news. And can I say personally that it's, if someone has not always been on the inside of Christianity, but was an atheist for a lot of my really formative years, that I'm really thankful for people who told me the truth and dealt with me in a loving and honest way. Because it's just not love to gloss over the fact that apart from Jesus, all of us are cut off from God. Even our very moral, non-Christian friend. When my dad is a, is a cancer doctor. He's a radiological oncologist. And as a cancer doctor, he has to tell people really, really hard things, really uncomfortable truths about their lives, things that devastate them. Like, you have cancer. It's something that's going to change the way that you think about your future. It's going to change the way you think about your health, how you're going to do relationships. Like, he says those things, and it's hard. It's not fun. It's probably super awkward for him. But what would be even worse is if he never told someone the truth about their condition, and they just died from it. I mean, something you should consider is that maybe part of why God has called you to Carolina and called you to all the organizations and clubs that you're a part of is that 
Maybe you're part of God's answering somebody's prayer that they would know him and know his truth. But maybe somebody threw up a prayer and said, God, if you're real, you know, show that to me. And then you show up in their life. Like, what if that's part of what you're here for? Fourth, we need to be honest with other people. But we also need to acknowledge our fears about our honesty. I know this stuff can be hard. Look, no one here has chickened out more from saying hard things to people than I have. Like, nobody has done that. So take it from somebody who knows. The greatest prison that people live in is the prison of what other people think of them. And when we fear people, and we fear what people think of us, that can just feel like prison. We fear rejection. We fear being different. We fear not knowing all the answers. We feel fear awkwardness, losing friendships, being perceived as closed-minded or arrogant. We give in to fear by making excuses that let us off the hook, and we never have a conversation about Jesus. We become too busy, so we do nothing. We intentionally avoid people. We get cynical and say, you know, this is never going to happen anyway. And at the root of all those things is this fear that becomes this all-consuming enterprise. The fear in our lives can just be so contrary to what we say we believe about God and the gospel. And part of missional repentance is owning your fear. Don't try to deny the reality that you're afraid to say some of this stuff. Own it and say, this is a part of my heart. Don't deny it. But repent of it and turn to God and his constant refrain of do not be afraid. I will be with you. Fifth, do not expect mission to be quick, but be patient. Look, we're Americans. We invented the microwave and the pizza roll so that we could have dinner in, I don't know, like a minute and a half, right? We want things to be quick, especially things that we really desire we want to be quick. But change takes time and people are slow. And good mission requires good relationship, which usually means a long series of conversations. So expect that this is going to take time. Six, do not expect it to be easy, but persevere. Mission is about participation in the life of Christ. It's about running towards Jesus. As we run towards Jesus, we run towards other people and try to love them like he did. But sometimes that comes with rejection. And you know what? That's part of Jesus' assurance to us that we are actually connected to him. Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. Like, why are you blessed? You're blessed because you've got Jesus. He also said, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets before them. Like, if we're always on people's good side, and no one has anything to say about us because we're Christians, like, that should give us pause for concern. Do not expect mission to be either quick or easy. But expect it to be good. Because it's good to be involved in the life of Jesus. Look, y'all, scheduling for us is not a problem. We are super good at scheduling. Behind all of this is just something that's inside of us. This is, you know, I just want to live life on my own terms. I don't want to have to love people, especially when it's inconvenient or hard for me. It's hard enough for me to love people that are like me. My dance card is full. I hardly see the people I like, let alone have time for people that are outside of that circle. You know, you can know tons about the Bible and what you're supposed to do. But man, at the end of the day, you will do what you love. You will only do what you love. 
So if you want to be missional, don't start with your schedule. Start with your love. Start with your justification. And with the question of, what is my righteousness? What is my righteousness? Because it's not all the sin that you're not doing. It's not the approval of your friends and your family and your life. As though, you know, if you can navigate how to be a Christian and how to keep them all happy, then you'll be fine. Those things are not your righteousness. Your righteousness is the finished work of Jesus for you. I mean, where does the punishment for my lovelessness and my selfishness go? It goes on Jesus. But His Word says there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. That because of Jesus' work, God looks at you and smiles. He sings at you. He pays out all the penalty for our lack of love. And He doesn't just take us from negative to a zero. He gives you His right standing. Relationally speaking, that if you're a Christian, you're not at zero with God working your way up. That if you're in Christ, then you possess all the benefits of Christ. His life, His health, His beauty, His standing, His cleanness. Everything that Jesus has is yours if you're in Jesus. And that is an incredible resource for change. That's an incredible resource for wanting to actually do mission and be involved in people's lives when it's inconvenient. That's an incredible resource for you right now as you're at Carolina. And so I want to end with this. This last Christmas, uh, Katie and I were driving to Memphis uh, to go see her family. And as we were driving, we stopped in Nashville to stop and stay with some friends of ours uh, for overnight. And they had been like our church small group friends back when we were in seminary in St. Louis. And they were the friends who were not in seminary and like hanging out with them had been this breath of fresh air because suddenly here's like a regular couple and they're not Bible nerds and they're not studying and they're just working and doing life and they were awesome. We had this great history with these people. We love these people. And we're staying at their house in Nashville and they asked me just, you know, how is your job going? And so I'm starting to talk about RUF and college ministry. And the husband looks over at me and Katie And he just starts telling us how he and his wife had become Christians in college. And that totally caught me off guard because he's telling his story and he's telling it. I realize, you know, we have been friends for almost a decade. I'm a pastor. I have no idea how this person became a Christian until this moment. Just one of those funny things where your friends just kind of open up to you and tell you some really important detail of your life that you had no idea. But regardless, this guy had grown up hearing every week You know, if you're a little unsure that you're saved, i.e., like, if you're unsure that you're a Christian, you need to raise your hand, and someone will come, and they'll pray with you. And he and his wife, they hadn't known each other before college, but they'd grown up in really similar circumstances. And so just, you know, week after week after week of hearing that and raising their hand so many times and falling on their faces so many times, like all of us do, and it just never seemed to take. It just never seemed to really do anything. In fact, it left him with a deeper sense of, if I really have faith in Jesus, then I should be able to stand fully confident in me and in my faith in him. But he looked at me when he was telling this story and he said, you know, I heard that over and over and over for years. And you know what? Like the only effect that it had on me was to make me very sure that the faith that I needed was not inside of me. Like that's the only effect it had. Do you know what happened next? He said it was a, like a light slowly turned on in a dark room. Because he and his wife, they go to college. They meet there. They kind of meet doing a Christian ministry. 
And he said that the pastor started to tell them over and over and over again in sermons, you know, that if they were unsure of themselves, and if they were unsure of their faith and their love and their motivation for doing stuff, then they were doing it right. And that they should look outside of themselves and look outside of their own certainty to the only truly certain thing, which is God's love for sinners in Christ. And he said they marinated in that over time, and God made them new through it. Do you know that's not just for people who are not yet Christians? That that is for everybody. Look inside of yourself for change. Look inside of yourself for a new love, a new motivation. And you will never find it. You will only find the same old you. But look outside of yourself at Christ. Look outside of yourself at Him and His love for you and His love for people who fail Him all the time. And you'll find all the love and all the mercy and all the change you need. Look, you are called to share the gospel if you're a Christian. But you do not live in a pressure cooker. You live in a relationship with God as His dearly beloved child. And if you want to grow if you want to love people, if you want to be missional, then focus on Him and His love for you. And change will come from that. And so that's my offer to you tonight. To look on Jesus, the one who loves you, and find your life in Him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would be with us tonight. That you would show us the beauty and the love and the power of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, that you would transform us and make us new, that you would give us new motivations, a new heart, a new love for you and for your people. Lord, that for those who don't know you yet, God, that you would help them to see that nothing that they need is inside of them and everything they need is in you. And Lord, that for those of us who struggle with mission, who struggle to pursue people who aren't like us, Lord, who struggle to, and fall on our face and fail, Lord, let us not look to our own strength but to you and the one who gives strength to people who are weak. In your name we pray. Amen.